I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. Welcome to the show, Annie. Well, thank you for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the program all the way from, well, not so sunny Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the moment. From what I understand, the, a foot of snow fell yesterday, even though it's spring. That is true. It was the first day of spring, and we got over a foot of snow. I, I just love that I'm talking to you. You know, people have been saying to me, oh, what's it like going on book tour? And I'm like, no, you don't really go on a book tour anymore. You mostly go on like a podcast tour. So uh, the fact that we can just be chatting with each other and I can be in my house in Philly and you're in Australia, I think, you know, oh, yay, yeah. modern technology. Exactly. And not only that, but if you were to go on a book tour and you know, hit up some bookstores, you, you might get a few hundred people um, in some cases, whereas you get on a podcast and suddenly you're on in front of thousands of people around the world. So the, the reach and scale is so much greater, yet you don't have to leave the comfort of your own home. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. And also, I really love uh, with podcasts how in-depth you can go. I mean, I'm a, I'm a podcast listener myself, mm-hmm. so I love how in-depth you can go into concepts that, you know, uh, a deeper dive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to taking a deep dive with you today. And being from uh, Philadelphia, where you were uh, stoked by the Eagles Super Bowl victory a couple of months ago? I indeed was. I have been an Eagles fan since the 80s. Wow. Uh, so I've been waiting a long time for this one. And um, I was very, very excited. Plus, it was such an exciting Super Bowl regardless. Mm, yeah. I mean, even if you weren't voting, you know, rooting for the Eagles, uh, that was a that was quite a Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah, very tight run um, contest, and um, you know, I understand what it means to be a long-suffering fan. I've been a fan of uh, the Phoenix Suns since oh. 1992, when uh, Charles Barkley was playing for them, and I've been a, a suffering fan now for you know 20, 26 years or something like that. Now, so, how did you how did you end up as a fan of the Phoenix Suns? <laughs> that's a great question. It's a great question. Um. I think that was at a time when, you know, I was nine to ten years old. The NBA was super popular here. It was the era of Pippen and Jordan and you know, Larry Bird was I think in his last season. And uh-huh. Charles Barkley that year, he joined the Suns, he was the MVP. The Suns had these killer seasons, sixty two wins, twenty losses, and so I got on the bandwagon. And once I get on the bandwagon, I didn't get off the bandwagon. Now, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but since then, let's just say it's been less than a less than gratifying uh, affiliation with the Phoenix Suns. Well, here's the here's the good news is that when you've been waiting around for so long, it's so much sweeter. So, weirdly, <laughs> I, I I know that I'm a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles, but I also happen to be a Boston Red Sox fan because I grew up in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. uh, and you know we used to go to a lot of games during the summer. I wasn't a football fan when I was young. It was it was when I was a little bit older that I became an Eagles fan. So I, I got to have the one-two punch because, of course, the Red Sox yep. were pretty long-suffering there uh-huh. for a long time too. So it's been a good, it's been it's been a good little run for these teams that I've always rooted for. Fantastic. Well, so it will come to you someday. Well, I look I look forward to that, Annie. I, I wait with bated breath. Um, so speaking of Super Bowls, um, Super Bowl Forty Nine, um, your book tells the story of the Seahawks coach Pete Carroll who made one of the most controversial calls in football history. Now, for our Australian audience, many of which would probably not be all that familiar with the play, what was the play and why was it so controversial? 
Sure. So I'll give a little bit more background because mm-hmm. your audience may not. It, this is a very, very famous play in America, so I don't need to say much about it before people start having opinions. But mm-hmm. I, in this particular case, so it's it's the Super Bowl. It's 2015. The Seahawks are playing the Patriots. Um, it And this is now 26 seconds left in the game in the fourth quarter. So this is at the end of the game. The Seahawks, who are down by four, have gotten themselves onto the one-yard line of the Patriots. So they only need to go one more yard in order to get into the end zone. Uh, and they, it is second down of four, and the Seahawks can stop the clock once. They have one timeout left. Yep. Uh, a, a lot of detail, but all of that detail is actually quite important. Mm-hmm. So what's important to know with the Seahawks is that they have one of the best running backs, uh, particularly in short yardage situations in the history of the NFL, a guy named Marshawn Lynch. And everybody is expecting that Pete Carroll is going to hand the ball off to Marshawn Lynch. And Marshawn Lynch is going to, you know, try to march the ball into the end zone. And uh, hopefully that would be the end of the game. Um, Another important thing to understand is that uh, on run plays, when you fail to get into the end zone, the only way to stop the clock is to actually call a timeout. The the clock doesn't stop on its own um, after the play is done. So that just becomes important in terms of understanding this decision. Um, so the the expected play is handoff to Marshawn Lynch. Uh, what Pete Carroll does instead is something very unexpected. He has Russell Wilson throw the ball. Uh, Russell Wilson throws it toward the end zone, and the Patriots' Malcolm Butler intercepts the ball, and the game is over. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> yes. So this is pretty exciting. Uh, Chris Collingsworth, who was calling the game um, during the game, declared it to be just a ridiculously bad play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the papers, the the national papers, the next day certainly disagree didn't disagree rather, and they also thought that this was a terrible, terrible play call. Uh, and in fact, um, USA Today went so far as to call it as uh, the worst play call in NFL history, not wow. even in Super Bowl history. They decided it was the worst call literally in the history of, of the whole sport. Mm. So uh, people people weren't particularly enamored of the choice. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, on the surface of it, when you're on the one yard line, you've got to start running back. The conventional choice is just to try and rush over the line versus through a pass and then that pass having to be completed. I imagine the latter would be a much higher risk proposition in in most ordinary cases? Well, so this is what's so interesting about it mm-hmm. is that, you know, clearly the result was spectacularly bad. Uh, let's, let's agree to that. Uh-huh. It ended the game. But let's do a quick thought experiment to understand what might be going on here. Uh, let's just imagine and do the thought experiment that uh, Pete Carroll calls that same play and Russell Wilson passes the ball into the end zone and it's caught for a touchdown. Mm-hmm. At which point the the Seahawks go up by three, assuming that the extra point gets made. Otherwise, they're up by two. Um, and there's almost no time left on the clock. And the Patriots are unable to somehow march down the field with one Hail Mary. So the Seahawks go on to win the game after this this play. And yep. if we imagine that, I, I mean, I'll just ask you, what do you think the headlines would have looked like the next day? Oh, greatest play in NFL history. Right. He outsmarted Belichick because mm-hmm. Belichick is known as a very sort of unconventional coach, right? He outcoached him. Um, and I think that that's very telling because what we should be able to agree to, I hope, is that the quality of the decision itself, actually, it, it doesn't matter whether it turns out well or not. It, 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 just because the ball is caught doesn't mean that the decision was good. 
Uh, and just because the ball is intercepted doesn't mean the decision is bad. But we can see how clearly we act like it does because just doing the simple thought experiment of, oh, well, boy, you know, that I thought that was a really bad play because it was intercepted. But if it had been caught, gosh, I guess I would have thought it was a really good play. Um, that tells us something really interesting about human cognition and the way we work backwards from the quality of the outcome to the quality of a decision in a way that's actually quite irrational and, and really hurts our ability to process information in a rational way. It's a, it's a problem called resulting, yeah. uh, where we take, we take the result and we decide that that tells us how, you know, whether the decision was good or not. Yeah, and I guess that's our tendency to equate the quality of decision with the quality of its outcome, which you cover in your book. And we see that mm -hmm. in um, various forms. Uh, I mean, you get authors, coaches, personal trainers, whoever it is, somebody in a position of authority or, or, or a teacher of some kind, you know, they may have placed some lucky bets in the past. Say, for example, they were investing in early stage startups and they got lucky once and that one lucky bet propelled them to you know, wealth and fame and everything else, yet they had, say, 29 absolute bombs. And because they had that one lucky bet, which was potentially more to do with, say, luck than it was um, strategy, they're now in this position of, hey, I'm this you know, kick-ass angel investor. You should listen to me. I'll tell you how to do it, all this sort of stuff. And I guess that plays out in various, various forms. Yeah, I mean, that that's sort of, you know, partly where survivor bias comes in, right, that we only hear from the people who actually um, had success. And uh, that's assuming that people who did poorly, um, who didn't have the same kind of success, mm -hmm. uh, you know, clearly they deserved it and their decisions were really bad. I guess in the same way that we sort of think about Pete Carroll um, and that play call. Um, by the way, just to circle back on that, the chances of an interception there are somewhere, you know, hovering around the one-ish percent of the time. So, so because I'm sure there's some people listening saying, no, I really think it was a bad call. Mm -hmm. um, so I just want to just sort of slide in that sure. and the interception right there is only about one percent. So, so let's agree that at least we can have a discussion about whether it was unlucky. Um, but, I, you know, I think that this is a really big problem. And, and, and I think that what's really interesting is that if we if we make it something that's more of an abstraction, mm -hmm. I think that people can see this very clearly. Like if we talk about um, uh, how we behave around traffic lights, um, you know, where it's a, it's it's just sort of more it's a it's more settled and agreed upon, but also it's not something that we you know we're talking about it in the abstract because we're not actually running a light or not, so we're not attached to the outcome. The outcome didn't happen to us. I think that we can get into like a much more rational place in thinking about this kind of stuff. Mm. So I, I personally have run some red lights in my life. I don't know about you, but I have. It's been a few. Um, uh, just, just a few. You know, I've pushed, I've pushed a couple yellows too far or I haven't noticed or it's two in the yeah, morning. Yeah, sure, sure, and, Annie. You, you know, didn't notice. Yeah, I didn't notice. <laughs> um, but what's really interesting is that I've never um, gotten in an accident doing mm -hmm. that. I've never, in fact, I've never even gotten a traffic ticket. I've never gotten a moving wow. violation for going through a red light. Uh, but yeah, I don't think that that means it was a really good decision just because I was successful yeah. in my um, in that decision. And likewise, if I go through a, a green light and I get in an accident, it doesn't mean that I should really take very much from that and and you know change my decision making uh, very much based on that because I think we can agree that I had a good strategy about how I was driving. So if we go back to what you were talking about, mm -hmm. um, we can assume that uh, some of the people who are successful were running red lights. And now we're actually looking at them saying, well, they were so successful, I guess, that I should be learning from their red light running strategy. Um, and some of the people who are unsuccessful were running green lights. 
um, and actually had very good strategies that happened not to work out. And we're not seeing those good strategies and we're not we're not able to learn from them. Now, it's certainly true that some people who are very successful have very good strategies. They're green light runners and we should be learning from them. And some people who do very poorly are, are doing very poorly because they have bad strategies and they're red light runners. And we don't want to take too much from uh, at least on the what to do as opposed to what not to do side um, by looking at them. But it's not all of them. Just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. One thing separates OK Venture Returns from great venture returns. Deal flow. Do you wish your firm had more of it? With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns, content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, he touched on quite a few concepts there that I wanted to explore further. I mean, when you were talking about uh, Pete Carroll, you mentioned what would have happened if he had made the pass. And just right. looking at the world through the lens of, say, what's the counterfactual um, and when, when trying to make decisions as well. So you might make a decision around wanting to, say, make it could be a particular business decision, but not just looking at what's the impact of that decision, what's the likelihood of a particular outcome, but what's the impact of not making this decision or making, say, another decision like, and, and weighing them against each other. And your book explores the, this concept of, I guess, probability and applying these different lenses to decision making to ultimately help you make not the best decision, but the decision that's more likely to deliver the best outcome. Yeah. So you you actually said something in there that I, that I want to grab onto for mm-hmm. a second, because I think it was so good. Uh, when you talked about not making a decision, yeah. right? Like, it, right. So I think that one thing that happens is that we're sort of in this, when we're in the status quo, right, sort of things are chugging along the way they are. And we're thinking about um, uh, shifting strategy. We spend a lot of time imagining the outcomes of the new strategy that we yeah. want to execute. Mm-hmm. And we don't think a lot about, okay, but what, what happens if we don't decide to do that? Because we don't view sticking with the plan that we are, we're, we're already executing as a decision in and of itself. But that is a decision. And, sh- and when we're in that moment of strategic planning, we should treat that as a brand new decision, mm-hmm. as one of the things that are that are that is in the choice set. Um, and I think one of the reasons why people end up sticking with the status quo a lot is because they don't do that. They, they just think, well, this is sort of what I'm doing. And so uh, as I'm trying to think about a shift, I'm going to decide what the outcome of the shift is. Um, and if I make that shift, I'm going to think about whether that works out or not. And somehow, uh, if that shift doesn't work out, it feels a lot worse than if I just stick with the status quo and things don't go my way because they don't view that as a, as a new decision. But it should be viewed as a new decision yeah. at every point. Yeah. And speaking of sticking with the status quo, your book tells a story of Nick the Greek. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So Nick the Greek was a a big character in the beginning of my poker career. Mm-hmm. So I started playing poker in this little tiny, uh, I lived in a little tiny town called Columbus, Montana when I started playing, which had about 1200 people in it. And uh, the nearest big town was Billings, Montana, which was uh, about a 40 minute drive away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started playing in the basement of this uh, bar that was called the Crystal Lounge uh, in downtown Billings, Montana. The Crystal Lounge so, sounds very classy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It was as classy as it sounds. Um, 
And so we, I would descend down the stairs into the basement. It was very smoky, and I was playing with, like, lots of ranchers. Um, it was kind of like walking into a Marlboro ad, um, uh, except that the Marlboro man was, like, uh, 40 years older than when he was in the ad. Yeah, was there cowboy hats um, in the room? or? Every, yep, the whole, awesome. the whole nine yards. Love it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, and it was, it was, I mean, it was a great experience, but one of the people who played actually was not a cowboy. Um, it was a guy named Nick the Greek and, um, Nick, uh, was the manager of a hotel. There were a couple of hotels that were across the street from the crystal lounge Mm -hmm. and he was a manager of uh, one of those hotels. And so he had a lunch break every day and he would come by and play poker during his lunch break. So, um, I made sure that I was there during Nick the Greek's lunch break because, uh, Nick the Greek had a really unusual strategy when he played poker that I think tells us a lot. It's actually very deep about the way that we process information. So here's what his strategy was. Um, There's this thing in poker where people say, you know, it's really important to do things that are unexpected. That if people can predict um, your behavior that you, you won't win. And and that, that is true. That that's a, that's a true thing, but let's say Nick took it a little too far. Um, So he had decided that two aces, which is the mathematically very best two cards that you can get dealt, were actually a really bad hand to play because, um, well, everybody expected that if you had aces, you would play it. Uh Um, And then uh, a seven and a two, uh, uh, not of the same suit, which are the two very worst cards that you can be dealt in a game of Texas Hold'em, he decided was a really good hand because obviously it would be really unexpected that you would ever be playing those two cards. You know, never mind that the cards are face down. I mean, he just decided that this was his strategy. And... um, he would actually sometimes like he would bet and you would raise uh, and he would just show you the two aces and fold them and just be like, I'm not falling for your trap. I'm not going to play this hand. Um, and, you know, and he, he would occasionally turn over a seven and a two and, and beat you, um, you know, but he wasn't winning in the long run. Mm. And uh, so one day I, I came in and I was like, well, where's Nick the Greek? Like, why isn't he here? And they told me that Nick the Greek had to go back to uh, Greece. Um, so I, I don't know if it was directly related to poker, but I suspect, um, that he ran out of money and, and got sent home. So, uh, he, he was not a winning player. And the question that, that I always had, I mean, this was a very early experience and, and I think it was really informative for me was, well, I mean, obviously Nick the Greek isn't winning. He lost so much money that he got sent back to Greece. Yeah. So why is it that he wasn't changing his strategy and he was clearly getting a lot of feedback that his strategy wasn't good because, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, over the course of time, he was losing a lot of money. Mm. Um, and, and I think that the real problem is this, is that uh, unlike in a game like chess, mm-hmm. where if you're making really bad decisions, you just have bad outcomes. In a game like chess, this problem of resulting isn't so bad, right? If you lose a game, I'm, 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 I can make the conclusion that you played worse than I did, that your decision making was poor in comparison to mine if we played head to head, right? Um, but in other things like driving through traffic lights, it, it's not a particularly good um, strategy because outcome quality and decision quality are actually relatively loosely linked. Mm. But what goes along with that is that sometimes Nick the Greek was winning with the seven and two. <laughs> and sometimes he was losing with the aces. And apparently that doesn't need to happen that much for you to be able to reason around the reason why you're losing as being because you're unlucky. Yeah. And and to continue to reinforce the strategy that a seven and two are the best hand because sometimes you do win with it. And that just confirms 
this belief that you have, in his case, this belief that 7-2 was a good hand, whenever he won with it, he confirmed that that was a good strategy. And when he lost with it, he just thought he was getting unlucky. So I think it's really informative as to how this really loose connection, another way in which this loose connection between outcome quality and decision quality can really muck you up in terms of trying to become an expert at anything. Yeah. And I guess there's a a flip side to, to resulting. For example, if say I am a startup and I'm executing a particular strategy, it doesn't seem to be working. And so I go on and change something fundamental about the business model, such as, for example, the customers I'm targeting. But perhaps I just didn't give it enough time and I was onto something and effectively I've treated it as a false negative. I mean, does that make sense? Is that kind of the flip side of resulting in a way? It's it's one of the huge problems mm. of, of resulting is that when we use these things as too great a signal, um, it, you know, it, it's it's very hard to know. That's the problem is so we have these outcomes. So we can sort of think about outcomes are coming in and we want to kind of sort them into two buckets, the skill bucket and the luck bucket. Mm-hmm. So, you know, luck, obviously, we don't have any control over that. You know, you won them with the seven deuce. OK, you know, or you lost with aces. What are you going to do? You went through a red light and it was fine. And you, uh, you know, you went through a green light and you got in an accident. OK, so well, you're you know. clearly not a fan of that whole concept that you can create your own luck that, that you often hear. Oh, I'm so glad that you said that. No, you can't create your own luck. You can create your own decisions, which then can increase the probability that you have good outcomes. Yeah. But beyond that, once your money's in the pot, it's going to turn out the way it is. And you trust me, you have no control over that. Um, you can increase the probability that you have good outcomes, which is not creating your own luck. Uh, so, so yeah, so so the issue is that, so, we, you know, we have these outcomes come in and all we have is the outcome itself. Mm-hmm. And we have to try to figure out well, is this because of a decision that I made, something that was in my control in the skill bucket, or is this because of something that was out of my control that I, I, I actually didn't re- really, the, the outcome was just due to luck. So I should put it over into the luck bucket. And the problem is that um, the outcomes all, con- you know, the decisions all converge onto outcomes that look very similar to each other. So in the, the example that you gave there, it's like, okay, sales aren't going very well. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that could be because your sales strategy is really poor, or it could be because you haven't given it enough time, or it could be because of things that actually have nothing to do with your strategy at all, like uh, there's a recession, mm-hmm. um, as an example. Or or here's an interesting thing, like you're a sales team uh, trying to figure out if your strategy is good, but it actually has to do with the product. Exactly. Right, and not the sales strategy. So how are you teasing this stuff apart when all you have to go on is that sales aren't very strong? Mm-hmm. And um, I guess on that point there where you asked how are you teasing this apart and I know a lot of uh, startups in this space will try and track different things. For example, how customers respond to a new feature, how a particular marketing campaign has been tracking, how particular sales reps have been working at putting uh, customers through the funnel from, from say the initial opening right that through to conversion. And um, I guess when you're tracking data, you've got more to work with. And I guess I've had conversations with people on the podcast in the past, such as um, Brian Christian, um, who wrote a book called Algorithms to Live By, and and Ben Yoskovitz, who who wrote a book called Lean Analytics. Now, their hypothesis, or their view on the world, rather, was more that good decision-making is about both data and gut. What's your view on that? Hmm. Well, so first of all, let, let me just let me just give everybody a little bit of a warning, mm-hmm. uh, which is um, 
data does not exist outside of people who are collecting it, mm -hmm. analyzing it, and interpreting yep. it. You can only so, collect so much of it and understand so much of it as well. Right, and you're deciding what data to collect. Mm -hmm. You're deciding what kind of questions to ask. You're yep. deciding what you're sampling. Mm -hmm. You're deciding what analytics you're going to run on it. And then and then you're the one interpreting. You know, there's a human being somewhere interpreting the data and modeling it. So always, you know, I think that we have a tendency to think, well, the data is just telling us the truth. But there's a human being that's interpreting all of that. There's a human being that's collecting it and observing it. And we want to be really careful that sometimes a lot of times what we do is we'll use data to, to prove a belief or a conclusion that we want to yeah. get to. So, so you're um, suggesting that human beings aren't completely rational? I am. Isn't that weird? <laughs> and, and I think that sometimes data can actually – I think it's really important to always keep that in mind uh, and to ask – always be really careful about asking in what ways might the the might there have been other questions? What, what, you know, the way that we collected this, what, what other kinds of data could we have collected? How, what are other ways that we might interpret the data? And always really try to red team your own data. Um, because otherwise we, te we tend to be blue teams about data, particularly because we think that we don't need a red team for it because it's data. It's like two plus two equals four. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know, and, in your you book, know it's, it's not. Yeah. And, and in your book, you talk about uh, different biases, particularly confirmation bias. And you argue that people should, you know, rather than just seek opinions that confirm what you already believe, seek out those which you disagree with and listen with an open right, mind. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, so, so I think that actually purposefully, um, you know, really trying to argue against what the conclusion is that you think you're supposed to be drawing from the data uh, or, you know, and, and offer up alternative hypotheses that you really explore in detail is just going to, it's just going to make you better. Mm. Um, in terms of intuition, um, here, it, this is what I think. I think intuition is, is a very important tool. It's a necessary tool because uh, obviously there's lots of decisions that we have to make like in the moment um, where uh, it's really good that we have intuition because we wouldn't want to sit down and like, uh, draw out a map out a probabilistic decision tree in that yep. moment we might die because of it so um, let me give you an example if I'm driving along the road and a deer jumps out in front of me I hope that I'm not taking a lot of time to deliberate and I'm just going with my gut there um, but that's true of like lots and lots of decisions you're in a sales call and you've come in with some sort of plan in terms of what that interaction is going to look like and then something tells you that you need to change course um, and you don't have a lot of time. Like you're not stepping out of the room and going workshopping uh, what you think the strategic change is going to be. Uh, obviously, you're making that decision in the moment, and that's fine. And I think that intuition is an, a very important tool. That being said, I think that intuition should not be um, uh, the end reason for why you do something. So let me explain what I mean by that. I think that we need to take intuition or gut and hold it accountable to a deliberative process. So that means that if I come out of that sales call where I've broken with the strategy that you and I had previously agreed to because of some intuition that I had about the way that it was going, mm -hmm. because of my gut reaction, and you ask me about it, you should not ever accept from me this answer, well, my gut told me so. Yeah. That should not be acceptable. And I think that it is acceptable. I mean, very often, like if you consider to me, me to be an expert, um, in that situation, you'll accept that as an answer. And uh, that should be unacceptable because on my part, what I'm really telling you is that I don't know, mm -hmm. right? I don't know why my gut just told me. So force me to tell you why, because uh, if I can't offer you some way that you can understand and learn from and replicate the decision that I made, uh, we should suspect that maybe my intuition wasn't leading me to my, to the best choice there. Yeah. And, so 
I've had this experience a lot in my life. Um, one of the best ways to get intuition to be really accountable to a deliberative process is to try to teach something to somebody. Um, so when I was teaching poker, I actually ended up changing quite a few of the strategies mm-hmm. that I was doing uh, really in an intuitive way or a gut way where it was working out for me fine in the context of my game. It wasn't like I was losing. It just turned out that um, I couldn't really explain it very well to another person. And when I figured out a way uh, to be able to explain it, I discovered that it wasn't actually optimal and there was another way to do it. So let's think about intuition as your response that's informed by the whole of the experience of your life, mm-hmm. right? And so experts are going to have better intuition in general than beginners because they have more experiences that are informing that intuition. Yep. Okay, so that's great. That's that's the start of the process that gets us to a good intuitive answer. But then let's hold intuition accountable to a deliberative process, which will then refine and calibrate the intuition itself. So we want it to be going in a circle. We want there to be some way to hold it accountable to another process. So we want them to interact. Mm. And you, you can only rely on your intuition so much even if you are a quote-unquote expert who has so many data points and experiences to draw from that has refined their intuition over time it still doesn't suggest that your intuition is going to be right every single time and there's going to be different variables that come into the equation that are going to influence what the best decision looks like at that given time so you also need to seek out truth in other ways and and one other way you've talked about in your book is this concept of uh, truth-seeking pods which I quite liked because I draw parallels between truth-seeking pods and what we see in the world of agile project management and software development where there's this game called planning poker I'm not sure if you're Mm -hmm. familiar with it Annie but this is where you might have, say, teams and they're brainstorming how long it's going to take to take a particular feature to the market. How long is it going to take to develop? And so you might have a team of five and everybody has a pack of cards with a Fibonacci sequence of it. So it's like one, two, three, five, mm-hmm. eight, thirteen, something like that. Um, everybody writes down how long they think it will take. People flip their cards over. And if there's a discrepancy of, say, more than two, the person who had the highest number and the lowest number need to justify why they think it was so high, why the other person thinks it's you know, we, we can develop this overnight and they may have different experiences. And then once they've actually vouched for why they think it's so high or so low, then the team votes again until eventually they are landing on nothing more than, say, a one card discrepancy between between the group. I guess, how does that align to your notion of truth seeking pods? Well, first of all, I love that. Uh, second of all, let me just make a suggestion mm-hmm. that um when t- people are too far apart uh, and they have to justify their side, force them to justify the other person's side and, mm. uh, and, and have, and, and really do it as like a referee so that you're not, as you're justifying why the other person believes what they do, you're not justifying some sort of straw man version mm-hmm. um, of what you think their argument is that because if people in the room are actually voting, if, if you change the rules of the game to giving the best argument, and that's what you're getting rewarded for, what will happen is you'll sort of be able to see their side of the equation a little bit more, and that's generally going to cause moderation in your own side. Um, so it's going to help you see your own side more clearly when you're disagreeing with someone who's far apart. So, uh, you know, we're very good at arguing our side. Um, I think that it's really good to develop habits where you're really good at arguing the other person's side to the point where they would actually think you argued it better than they did. Um, I think that's a a great little addition to that game, which I really love. And I'm so happy that you told me about that game because it's it's uh, an amazing exercise. Um, yeah, so with the decision pods, I think that what's interesting is that intuition, if you think about it by definition, is sort of something that you're doing on your own. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't involve other people. And uh, what that means is that your intuition is generally not being challenged by uh 
people who think that another answer might be right. Yeah. Um, because it's kind of just running on its own, so it's not held accountable. The, the other thing that happens when you're just sort of relying on intuition is that I, I think it's harder to get to innovative solutions. It tends to encourage status quo because intuition, by definition, is kind of informed by the history of your experiences. So you're not going to end up out of – your intuition isn't going to lead you generally to something that's like a paradigm shift. Um, uh, that takes disagreement and, and uh, that takes um, – you know, people holding different views and challenging the views that you have. It, it, it takes looking at the world through the lens of why might I be wrong uh, versus why might I, I be right, which is not something that an intuition leads you to. Intuition tends to lead, to lead you to the why might I be right side of the equation, which is fine, again, in the moment, but we want to challenge it later. Um, so the thing is that it's very hard to, to act as that person for ourselves. It's just really hard for us to challenge ourselves and say, why, why might I be wrong? We naturally, we only have the experiences that we have. We only have the hypotheses that we can come up with. Um, and we're going to tend to process and view the world through the lens of why is playing seven deuce a great strategy? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to look around for all sorts of information that confirms that. Like I'm going to be thinking about the times that I won, not the times that I lost. It takes other people to really help us with that because if you think about it in your own life, while you might, you might not be great at, at figuring these things out for yourself, I bet you're pretty good at spotting biased people, biased thinking in yeah. other people. Um, I bet you're really good at spotting what other people have missed, what information they're not taking into account, what alternative hypotheses they haven't thought about. And the reason is that you're a different person than them and you, you have a much more objective eye on other people than you do on yourself by definition. Yeah. So, Creating a great pod of people who have an agreement to watch each other's back and to really try to uh, have this real, real focus on how do I construct the most accurate uh, view of the world, the most accurate beliefs of the world, as opposed to just affirm that the things that I already believed are right or that my intuition is right or that, you know, mm. I'm smart and I deserve credit. Uh, which is the way that I process the world. It's the way that everybody processes the world. But now we make an agreement. No, we're not going to process the world to try to prove that we're right. We're going to process the world in this open-minded way, which is I want to try to uh, have my beliefs be the most accurate, which means that I'm going to have to calibrate my beliefs and sometimes realize that I need to downgrade a belief or sometimes it will make me upgrade a belief, but I need to consider things from other people's perspectives. I need to ask, I need to, accuracy requires um, that you process the world through the lens of why am I wrong mm. as opposed to uh, processing the world to just believe that, you know, you're, that your prior beliefs are right means that you're asking why am I right all the time. So um, it, that's really great to do with other people because other people will watch your back. They're going to be able to offer you all of their perspectives and all of their experience and all of the information they have and all of the alternative hypotheses they have that are going to help you get to a more accurate view of the world so you can use them to watch your your decision making back yeah yeah and, and i think there's parallels between that and a lot of the philosophies we see coming out of say silicon valley these days such as mm -hmm. strong opinions weekly held um which is i know jeff bezos over at amazon is a big believer of that strategy or that philosophy rather and you know even going back to say you know buddhist thinking seek seek truth uh, don't seek being right because um, being right is all about protecting your ego rather than figuring out what the best outcome is that's going to help all parties involved in a particular decision. And I guess in your book, you also have this notion of the power of I'm not sure, which, which aligns with what we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the things that we do is 
I think that we confuse uh, confidence and certainty. Mm. Um, and I think that we think that uh, in order to be, I mean, this is strong opinions weekly held, right? Uh, as you just said, in order to be believable communicators, uh, for us to think that uh, our opinions are going to hold sway, yeah. that we need to express them with absolute certainty because we think that if we express them with certainty, that that necessarily means that we're confident in those decisions and confident people, I think, are, are you know, we think are better leaders and, and they're, they're more believable. Uh, but I think that that's conflating two things that actually shouldn't be conflated, that you can be confident, confident excuse me, um, that you can be confident uh, and also uncertain. And in fact, expressing uncertainty exudes much more confidence. So uh, let me try to explain, let me try to get there. Sure. Um, so uh, when you express things with uncertainty, what are, what's the value of that? Well, first of all, it's certainly a more accurate representation of what the state of your opinions and beliefs are, because we, we don't know everything for sure. And we all know that things we thought 10 years ago, or we're kind of embarrassed about now, um, even when we thought them with absolute certainty. Yep, I'm um, embarrassed yeah. about a lot of the opinions I had even five years ago. So I agree with you there. I'm, a, I'm embarrassed about some that I had yesterday. Yeah, so, 100%. Um, right. So if we acknowledge that, then what we can, what we should acknowledge is that our beliefs and our ideas and our predictions are generally in progress mm -hmm. or under construction because we know that they change uh, throughout our lives as we gather more information and more expertise. So uh, let's start off by saying, uh, when we express uncertainty, we're, we're actually uh, modeling the state of our beliefs in a more accurate way um, as in progress. So that, that's kind of number one is that we're just being more accurate when we do that. But, but number two is that uh, all sorts of great things come from it, including, I think, you come off as a more confident communicator. Um, because when I say to you, this strategy is right. And I know that if we do this, it, we're, it's going to be, you know, for certain, uh, the best path. And uh, this is the way that we should go. Because I believe that this strategy is 100% right. And I am confident in that and take it to the bank. Um, if I do that, you're, you might react in, you know, a certain way in terms of your view of me. Um, but what's going to happen when I do that is that, first of all, I'm going to shut down uh, some conversation in the room. Mm -hmm. So particularly if I'm a leader and I say, this is my belief, I think that this is the path and take it to the bank. If you disagree with me in that room, you're much less likely to offer up your disagreement. Um, and there's two reasons why you're much less likely to offer up your disagreement. Um, reason number one is that you might think that what you think is actually not right. And so you don't want to express it because you don't actually want to be viewed in a bad way by me. You don't want me to think poorly of, of your opinion. And I've already expressed my opinion as certain, so you yeah. won't share with me. Uh, the second reason is that uh, I just expressed my opinion with absolute certainty. And so you might not share with me because you actually don't want to embarrass me, even though you think that I could mod moder you know, you have information that might be really useful to me. Mm -hmm. So uh, I will end up walking out of that room with some false consensus because of the way that I've expressed myself. Also, if I say to you, well, this is, this is the strategy that I'm thinking about, and I'm considering this versus this other strategy, and uh, I've, I've gotten myself to where I'm 67% sure that this strategy that I'm considering 
is the best strategy. And I think it's the best strategy over all the other strategies that I could choose as I'm sort of considering them now. So, but I'm 67% on this one. How much confidence does it take for someone to be willing to say that in a room? Uh, quite a lot. <laughs> right. So now all of these great things come from it. Number one is I seem really confident because I'm willing to say I'm 67%. Mm-hmm. I seem like I'm a much more believable communicator because in order to ever come up with 67%, I have to have put a lot of thought into it. Mm. Uh, I have to have done my research. I have to have considered what the sources of my uncertainty might be, uh, what alternative uh, viewpoints are. And then this is the really wonderful thing because I've expressed the uncertainty in this very confident way. I have now invited you into the process. I've opened the door wide open for you to tell me uh, whether, you know, why you think it might be 72% or why you think it might be 52% or even 30%. Because I've announced to you that I'm open to other opinions, that I'm in the process of information gathering. I'm in the process of constructing this belief and trying to decide about what we're supposed to do. So now all of a sudden you feel comfortable in that room telling me what you know. And that comes from this place of when I, when I announce things with certainty, I'm announcing that I am not information hungry, that I am not looking for information because I already know for sure. And that's true not only of what I'm speaking to the people of the room, but for myself, I'm much less likely to go and seek more information because I've already banked it as a yes. Whereas if I express the belief with uncertainty, I now am announcing myself as someone who is information hungry. And so I'm just much more likely to get information out of the people who are around me. And I'm going to be a more believable communicator and I'm going to come across as more confident in the process. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I think by doing that, like you said, you're opening up the conversation and maybe there was a time 30 or 40 years ago when the world moved at a slower pace, technology was evolving at a slower pace Mm -hmm. where you could make decisions with a greater degree of certainty if you were, say, a senior executive at a large company. You understood what the landscape looked like. Sure, there were many variables that were ever-changing, such as the economic and political landscape, but there was more certainty back then than there are now. And so embracing this notion of opening up the conversation, asking other people what they think, you need to do that now more than ever if you're a leader at an organization. And, and one thing we do, we're a small team of 10 people, but even if we're making decisions about a particular strategy, the one thing I always try to look out for is I don't want to fall into the notion of groupthink where I say something and because mm. I'm the leader of the organization, other people will just reiterate what I've said or they will just tweak it somewhat. I always say, hey, write down what you guys think we should do and then let's share it and have a conversation about it. And that's this whole concept of working alone together because different people are going to have different opinions but if I say something if my you know someone who's uh, the 2IC for example says something people who are lower down the, the food chain if you will even though we consider ourselves a pretty flat organization may not feel as comfortable speaking up even though they might have something very valuable to say I, I, I totally agree with you so one of the things that that I try to point out in the um, uh, in the book is so there's there's these scientific norms that were developed by somebody named uh, Robert Merton, mm-hmm. um, and the acronym for them is Kudos. Uh, just really quickly, the C the C is communism, obviously not the political kind, but more that uh, data and details uh, should be uh, shared with everybody who's involved in the decision. Yeah. Right. So so the more if everybody has access to the data and the details of the decision process, then you're going to get obviously they're going to be better at giving you high fidelity advice back. So that's mm-hmm. the C is the sharing of data. Uh, U is universalism, meaning that, um, you know, obviously there, there's issues in terms of credibility, but, but outside of that, uh, that uh, a truth 
does not change depending on who delivered it, depending on whether you like the person who delivered it or not. Things, uh, if there's things about the person that don't have to do with whether they would know the truth of the matter or not. So the example that I give in the um, book is that the earth is round, whether it's um, Mussolini or George Washington mm-hmm. or Isaac Newton or you know, your mother yeah, yeah. who tells you that uh, it doesn't really matter. Or it's sh- still round. Sh- or Shaquille so, O'Neal a couple of years ago. Right, right, right. <laughs> so. Exactly. So, so the earth is round, is round, is round, right? So, um, so that's universalism. And we need to try to think about uh, when we, uh, that we're not disagreeing with a message just because we happen not to like the messenger mm-hmm. and that we're not agreeing with a message just because we happen to like the person who who delivered it, right? So we want to try to make sure that we're teasing those things apart. So that's the universalism part. Mm-hmm. Now, where we get to in terms of what you just said is the D part, which is disinterestedness. So um, disinterestedness has to do with making sure that when you are reasoning about something that there isn't a conflict of interest. Now, we all understand what it means to have financial conflicts of interest, right? That um, obviously, if I'm going to make money by selling a particular opinion, then I'm, I'm going to sell the particular opinion because I'm going to make money from it. And what's interesting is that I may not even know that that particular conflict of interest is influencing my objectivity, is actually degrading my objectivity, but it will. So that, that's the way we generally think about conflicts of interest or like financial conflicts of interest or a judge shouldn't be ruling on um, a case that has to do with it, uh, someone who's related to them. That would be another kind, kind of conflict of interest that we think about. Mm-hmm. But what I discuss in the book is this other kind of conflict of interest, which is that we all really want to argue for our own case. Um, and that is actually like an infectious disease. Yeah. So if you're leadership in the room and you have a particular belief or a particular strategy that you want to execute or a particular product that you want to launch or whatever it might be, and you express that belief to the room, first of all, you have a conflict of interest in terms of the way that you're going to process the information because you're going to be reasoning in a way where you won't even be aware of it in order to affirm what your prior belief is. But here's the interesting thing. When you're a leader in the room, you have to be careful because when you say those things to the room, you infect them with your own belief. And now they, without even knowing it, will start to reason toward your conclusion. It's the natural way that human beings are. So you've actually, as you just said, like, you know, working alone together is is one of the ways to actually deal with this conflict of interest is I'm not going to infect you with my belief. So I'm not going to let you know what my belief is in advance of the discussion. I want you all to write down what you think without knowing what I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then that's actually going to get you higher fidelity feedback. You know, another way that you can do that is if you're thinking about a, a higher um, and you have a very strong opinion and you understand that, again, no matter how flat an organization is, everybody knows what the hierarchy is, right? Let's mm-hmm. agree to that. Um, if you're at the top, you know, if you're at the top end of the hierarchy, if you say who you want to hire, it's going to affect the, 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 what the people say back to you. So you should allow them to go first and you go last in order to not infect everybody with your belief. Yeah, yeah. And I'm look looking back at some of the hires I've made in the past, there's definitely uh, some instances where I should have taken that approach. Just real quickly on hiring, we might just digress for a second. Um, sure. You know, I've already talked about today's technology landscape. Things are moving faster than ever. Things are more ambiguous than ever. So how might we ask the right questions to hire employees who thrive under conditions of uncertainty and ambiguity? Uh, so I'm a big fan of, you know, I think that people are very well rehearsed for interviews now, for job interviews mm-hmm. now. 
So they, they kind of in general know how to ask questions. Uh, I mean, how to answer questions rather. So I really, uh, when I'm in job interviews, when I'm interviewing people, mm-hmm. um, I like to ask them questions that have no answer okay, and, so- and see how they deal with that. Yeah. So, uh, for example, I, I had a recent interview where I started talking about the trolley problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to know sort of what they thought about that. So for the people who are listening who don't know what the trolley problem is, it's a, it's a question that's in moral philosophy. Um, and it, it, here's the question. There's a trolley coming down a track you see that the trolley is heading toward five workers who are on the track. Uh, There's a lever that you can pull that will switch the trolley to a a side track. And on that secondary track, there's only one person. And so you know that if you pull the lever, the trolley, instead of hitting the five people, will Mm -hmm. hit and kill the one person. Will you pull the lever? You ask that question, you get an answer. And then you now follow it up with, okay, you're standing on a bridge and there's a person standing next to you. You see the trolley coming toward these five workers, and you know that if you throw the person off the bridge in front of the trolley, that um, that will actually stop the trolley from killing the five workers. Um, and you, you just, you know, I just start exploring that discussion with the person that I'm in the meeting with. I mean, you know, that I'm interviewing rather. So what's interesting about that there is that this is a situation where there literally is no right answer. Um, I can't, I can't tell you, it depends on whether you're, you're, you're a utilitarian or not, Mm -hmm. I suppose. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but you know, the people have now come into a situation where they thought there was going to be certainty that there were going to be certain ways that this interview was going to go. Um, and you have now sent it into a place that a, they weren't expecting Mm -hmm. and B to talk about something where they, they can't get graded with an A plus because the only grade that they can get is how do you react to discussing questions that don't have any answers? Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I, I think that's a great way to do interviews. It doesn't have to necessarily be the trolley problem, but just start exploring things with them that don't have actual, you know, that don't have settled mm, answers. Mm. See how they do with it. Yeah. See how they manage to think on their feet as such, but also it gets, gives you a sneak peek into how they think about life generally and, you know, whether they are utilitarian, as you said, or, you know, whether they just base it on, hey, there's five people, I'm just going to save the five, or, hey, what do those five people actually do? What does that one person do? Maybe that one person is doing some amazing, you know, social philanthropic work and he's changing the lives of tens of thousands of people and the other five people aren't doing anything. So there's all these things that people will start to think, at least you would hope so, and I guess that would right. show up in the, in the response. That shows up in the response. I've, I've heard other people um, use this as a strategy. When somebody shows up for an interview, they'll say to them, oh, was there traffic or something? You're, you're 15 minutes late. I'll just throw them off a bit. Just throw them off a bit and see how they do. What's interesting is that um, I, I think that the first time I did that, I was actually interviewing somebody for a company that I, I was consulting with. And I, I, I guess that I forgot to warn the CEO that I was going to ask such a question. And afterwards they called me up completely apoplectic because they said, why did you, why did you do that? You made them so uncomfortable and we've had such a hard search and uh, you know, maybe now they're not going to maybe want to come to this company because you were exploring this very difficult question with them. And I said, no, 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 no. If you really, if I think, first of all, I think you should hire them. They, they perform beautifully mm. as far as I was concerned under these circumstances. I said, you should call them up. And since they know that I was asking them very hard questions, um, tell them that I think they did amazing and that I was absolutely gung ho to hire them. And what you'll see is they're actually going to like the company and like the job more because they're going to think that they passed a very hard test. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think I read something about you talking about this particular topic whereby initially they would say they had such a terrible experience in the interview, this is the uh, the job candidate. But yeah. once you tell them that they got the job, it's like, oh, well, that was an amazing experience. I feel great for having overcome that, you know, challenge, uh, all those challenging questions. And now I feel like I'm in some sort of exclusive club. That That's exactly right. And it, it's actually a source of really feeling good about themselves. Um and I, I, you know, so I, I think that it, I think it's a great way if, if you're if you're in a particular company, like a startup where you really do need people to be very nimble, to be able to deal with adversity, to uh, not be defensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, defensiveness is a really bad quality in a startup yeah. um, to be open minded, to get excited about those kinds of questions. The thing that was really interesting in the uh, with this one candidate that I was talking about was she was excited to talk about the problem. You know, because she hadn't thought about it before, and and she was asking all the things you you did. You know, mm-hmm. well, what do I know anything about the people who are on yeah. the track? And she actually got, was just kind of excited to be asked a different kind of question, and that's so telling. Mm. Not not nothing around. Hey, what's your weakness, and how have you overcome it, and all that sort of stuff um, that you often hear in most job interviews. So one thing I really wanted to touch on today uh, was this topic of uh, paralysis analysis. And I don't know about you, but whenever I go to a Thai restaurant, Annie. I, I just the, the menus are massive. There's hundreds of options. There's the Thai beef salad. There's a pad Thai. There's a papaya salad. There's all sorts of stuff going on. Curries, everything else. And this notion of paralysis analysis shows up every day. I mean, how do you approach decision making when you have a multitude, you know, a whole buffet of options? Uh, well, first of all, I don't know. Do you do you remember uh, who Ivan Bosky is? Ivan Bosky, no. Who is Ivan Bosky? He, he's a very famous guy in America. He went to jail for insider trading. He, was a, okay. he, he did arbitrage. Mm-hmm. And the thing he was really famous for when I was in the 80s, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. It may just be a story that I heard was that he would go to this very fancy restaurant for dinner called Tavern on the Green, and he would order the whole menu. <laughs> That's one way to deal with it. <laughs> right. So, so there's one way to deal with it. When you go to the Thai restaurant, just order everything on the menu. <laughs> I just have to like turn up with about 10 friends and you know, coerce everyone into ordering different things and then I'll just steal things off their plate. That's probably the best <laughs> right, way to do it. Right, right, right. So, <laughs> but obviously, normally we, we actually have to choose one, one thing. So I actually think that interestingly enough that where analysis paralysis comes from mm-hmm. is from this idea that somehow you can end up being certain. Um, you know, it's this idea that, oh, if it doesn't work out, then I should have known, or there should have been more information, or I should have taken more time with the decision or done, done more analysis on it. Um, and I think that once you really embrace the idea that, look, uh, you have the decision you have and you have the time that you have, uh, so at some point you just have to bank the decision and you don't, you're, you're never going to get to a hundred percent. And even if you were at 100% and you knew for a fact that you were making the best decision, it can still work out poorly Mm. Uh, because that's just the way life is. I I can run the green light and I can get in an accident. So, you know, I can pass the ball when there's only a 1% chance of an interception and the ball gets intercepted. So I, I think that once you really embrace that idea that you only have so much control, that you only have the information that you have. And that there is no way to get to certainty and there is no way to guarantee that the outcome comes out uh, the way that you'd like it to. All you can do is try to increase the probability of that. Then what happens is I think that you, you, that you actually move away from this paralysis mm. problem because what ends up happening then is you say, well, I have a lot of expertise. 
and I've gone through this process and I've built out my decision tree and I've gotten lots and lots and lots of information and I'm most of the way there. And what I realize is that the amount of time it's going to take me in order to now go gather other information incrementally is probably not going to change the percentage that I'm already sure of this decision. Mm. You know, I, I've got four decisions in front of me and there's one that I, I'm 70% sure is the right decision, right? So that's a lot yeah. compared to these other four, you know, other, other uh, three options. And the fact is that since there are three other options that are on the table, how am I supposed to get past the 70, 70%? That's already a lot. And I have to know that there's always going to be things that are hidden from view. There's always going to be cards that are face down. Mm -hmm. And there's always going to be this luck element. So it's okay. Because what I've done is I've decided in advance, this is, this is good enough. And if it doesn't work out, I've, I'm already thinking about that in advance. I'm already accepting that. Yeah. And one of the ways to really get there is as you're, as you're thinking about the decision, really live in the downside. Say to yourself, why might this not work out? What are all the ways that this might go wrong? And map those out and include those in your tree and think about it because then you've already processed them in advance. And now you feel like you have a different kind of control because what you can say is, okay, I'm 70% that this is the right decision. Sometimes it might be I'm 40% that this is the right decision and that's more than all the other possibilities and so you go with it. But what you've done is you said, okay, I've thought about all the ways it might go wrong and what I've done to sort of protect myself against that is I'm thinking in advance about how am I going to react to those bad outcomes mm. so that I have a plan in place. So I feel like I'm not just going to be floundering and reacting and sad. And so that when that thing does happen, you say, well, this was in my plan. This was part of my tree. Mm -hmm. I knew that this was a possibility. Here's how I already thought in advance about how I'm going to react to it. Here's how I already thought about how I'm going to change course. And so that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, I, I draw parallels between that and this uh, question of what's the worst possible outcome and am I okay with that or how will I respond yeah. to that? It's, it's quite simple. And more often than not, you will be okay with it. But for, for some reason or, or another, we build it up in our minds like it's some really big, fundamentally life-changing decision. But it's really just a question between the beef salad and the papaya. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it goes back to, I mean, there's that really, I, I think that we should apply out that really simple thing that people give in dating advice. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? They say no when yeah. you ask them out on a date. Exactly. Like, uh, okay, they say no, that's going to be the worst thing that happens. And and until you really live in that, until you really explore um, and do some really good time traveling into that place where it hasn't worked out, I think that it's hard not to make it bigger than it is. And it will cause you to actually not ask the person out in the first place. Yeah. Um, and that's what we really want to avoid. So when we really think about, well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Like, let me think about all the bad outcomes that can come from this. Let me start trying to take a stab at the probability of those outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be a stab. It's going to be a guess. And that's okay, because that's better than not trying at all. Um, and, and now I'm going to think about, okay, How's it going to feel if this bad things happens? And when it does happen, what are all the plans that I can have in place so that I'm not reactive? Yeah. So that I'm actually nimble instead. Mm -hmm. um, and, and now I feel like I'm prepared for it. Uh, you know, I think that that's a lot better. I think we think a lot about this sort of positive psychology. Like I want to imagine all the great things that are going to happen and all the, um, you know, wonderful goals that I have and how it's all going to work out for me. And certainly I think that that's valuable. But I think we need to do this kind of negative, uh, negative um, you know, sort of fantasizing, um, negative visualization in, in order to not get into that decision paralysis where we have to feel like, oh, no, but if the bad thing happened, I wouldn't even be able to live with it. Yeah. 
And I, and I think that's you know one of the the most profound things I think we've touched on in these podcasts because it just goes way beyond everyday decision making to you know ha- living living a better life. And it also goes mm-hmm. back to Stoic philosophy in many ways. Uh, I think it was Marcus Aurelius's Meditations where he wrote about you know whenever you find yourself in, in a place where you you feel unsettled, as long as you know you can bring yourself back. You know, try and bring bring yourself back to that place of of centered of calm as quickly as possible as long as you can get comfortable doing that more often than not then doesn't matter what the outcome is you will always bring yourself back as long as who you are what your calm and what your center is based on is something that you you believe in and that way you will go out there you will you know ask that uh, person out on a date and if they say no fine you'll just bring yourself back um whatever it is uh, and you'll become more say comfortable facing adversity and and trying to overcome challenges in life because your ego won't be threatened to the point where oh man this outcome is so bad it's like no we've already prepared for this we're just going to bring ourselves back and try again tomorrow you know i i i completely agree and then i would also just in addition mm-hmm. to that which i i think is so true and I think that has to do with sort of living and imagining sort of what's the negative, what's it going to feel to be unsettled. But I would actually circle way back mm-hmm. uh, to the beginning of this podcast and say that when we're sitting there and we're in this analysis paralysis because we're trying to get 100 per- to 100% um, on the decision, I think that what we're leaving out is the not deciding is a decision in itself, right? That every minute that we take trying to get to 100% on this decision means that we're doing the thing that is already the status quo that we've already been doing already. And that in itself is a decision as well. So if you aren't exploring in parallel, that sort of allowing things to keep going the way they are, that you're, that you're, you know, more sure that that's better Mm -hmm. than, than the new, whatever decision it is that you want to do in terms of, uh, you know, the new decision, then um, what you're doing is acting by default. Now, that in itself is, is, is a form of making a decision without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, so if you don't think about, well, when I'm, you know, when I'm in this sort of paralysis because I can't decide what to do, recognize that you're already deciding something mm. because you're sta- deciding to stay with the status quo. And ask yourself, if I treated the status quo as a new decision, would I be in the same kind of paralysis? And I suspect yes. Yeah. That's a beautiful way to, uh, to wrap up uh, with today's podcast, Annie. So the book is called Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. And by the way, it's just become a national bestseller. So congratulations on that. Um, well, thank you. People can find you online at AnnieDuke.com. They can hit you up on Twitter mm-hmm. at Annie Duke. Obviously, they can buy the book on Amazon. Is there anywhere else people should go to learn more about you and connect? Yeah, well, so if you go to my website, AnnieDuke.com, um, there's a contact form there. So you can get in touch with me that way, either if you want to hire me or if you just want to say hello or you know, send me some feedback or um, ask me a question. Uh, the other thing is I send a newsletter out every Friday. You can subscribe to that on the website and um, you can actually see archives there so you can see whether it's content that you like. Uh, And in the newsletter, I I really apply these kinds of concepts to what's happening currently in the world, whether it's politics or business or science or you name it. Uh, I just will go through and and kind of, you know, do this kind of short application. Um, So if you like that content, go ahead and subscribe to that. It's a great way to interact with what I'm doing. Fantastic. And people can also listen to the first part of the new book for free at AnnieDuke.com as well. That is true. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, look, thanks so much for for giving up 
some time to speak, well, to speak with me and by virtue of that, the listeners of Future Squared. I think you've left us with a hell of a lot of value bombs, as I like to say, and I'm going to go back and listen to this three or four times, scribble down as many notes as possible just so I can extract as much value of it. But people should really rush out and get a copy of the book because if you like this podcast, you'll absolutely love the book. Um, Any parting words of wisdom for the audience, Annie? Huh, any parting words of wisdom, (laughs) yes. I do. I say, try to say, I'm not sure more. Uh, I'm not sure is a really, really beautiful thing. And if you say, I'm not sure, your beliefs will become more accurate. Your decisions will become better and you will have better relationships with the people around you. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Annie, for giving up some time. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your uh, snow drenched day. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media, a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.